Sup Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this rip of TFTC. I sat down with Matt Williams, the head of derivatives at Luxor Mining to discuss their new non-deliverable forwards contract. Ashrate derivatives, more coming to market. Very fascinating space, something I've been really tuned into on the mining side of things. Uh, hash rate derivatives are something I think are inevitable, I think are extremely important, and Matt and I dove into the particular product that Luxor has launched and, and how miners can leverage it, what it will do for the distribution of hash rate, ownership, and a number of other things. He was also on the team that launched the CME, Cash Settled Futures. So if you want to blame somebody for Bitcoin price suppression, go find him and yell at him. Just kidding. We talk about that as well. This was brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. They're right down the hall. I'm pointing to their to their offices. I have a nice hole in my shirt. Um, Unchained just launched a trading desk. Uh, this is the best way to buy Bitcoin by far. You set up a two or three multi-sig vault, uh, and then you buy Bitcoin directly from their trading desk into your vault. It doesn't sit on an exchange. You don't have to get your wallets and produce an address and do all that stuff. You set up your vault, you buy Bitcoin via Unchained's trading desk, and it goes straight to your cold storage, your multi-sig cold storage. It's a beautiful thing. Best way to buy Bitcoin. I've done it. It's easy. They made it very easy. Uh, right now, it's only available in 31 states. So if you are interested in leveraging the trading desk, uh, just check to make sure your state uh, is on the list of 31 states that it's available in. They're working on 50 states. Hope to have all 50 states soon. Um, yeah. Buy Bitcoin straight to cold storage. Use Unchained Trading Desk at unchained.com slash trading to check this out. If you're a high net worth individual, if you're a business, if you're a uh, medium worth, lower end of the, uh, the economic ladder and you want to buy Bitcoin, this is the most secure way to do it. You buy it. Go straight to cold storage. Unchained.com slash trading. This rip <laughs> was also brought to you by our good friends at Brains. The people on YouTube don't like don't like these ads. I'm sorry. We're going to have a different ad structure on YouTube soon. But Brains is sponsored this show. God, do we love them. If you're a miner, uh, you need to be leveraging Brains. They have Brains Pool, formerly Slush Pool. They have uh, Brains OS Plus firmware, which idiot-proofs your mining operation. If you have an ASIC that's compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it, you're an idiot. Go download Brains OS Plus firmware um, to, to make sure that you're stacking as many sats as possible and helping to elongate the life cycle of your ASIC. Uh, they have Brains Insights, uh, which is a massive, incredible dashboard with all the data that you'll need, calculators that you'll need for your mining operation. Uh, and then they have their blog. And some books. I, I wrote the foreword to a book with Daniel Frumpkin from Brains, the Bitcoin Mining Handbook. Go pick that up as well. Go to brains.com to check out all this. B-R-A-I-I-N-S.com. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends at Upstream Data. Upstream Data is here to bring you all the mining stuff that you need. Whether you're an upstream oil and gas producer looking to leverage your excess natural gas. They're building the hash shots for you. They have a 50 kilowatt hash shot of which I am the owner of not one. I've got many of them now. Uh, and they're beast. It comes with the, the data center, uh, the generator, which is very important. These generators are purpose built for Bitcoin mining. Uh, and then if you need the ASICs as well, Upstream does some ASIC brokerage. So you can get it all in one package. 
uh, if you're looking to leverage uh, your excess resources, whether it be upstream at the well pad or if you're a utility company with some excess electricity, some capacity, uh, upstream is here to build the infrastructure that you need. Go to upstreamdata.ca, tell them the TFTC sent you. Um, and they also, if you're an at-home miner, they have their black box, uh, which allows you to put some ASICs in it. You shut the box and all the sound, uh, not all of it, but a considerable amount of the sound goes away. You know, the annoying loud ASIC ring throughout your house. You can save your marriage. Go buy a black box. And again, you can buy a black box, use the code FREAKS, F-R-E-A-K-S. You're going to get 5% off. If you want to do a bundle, you can get a black box and ASICs. They'll hook that up. Go to shop.upstreamdata.ca to check that out. Last but not least, this was brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer lending platform with no KYC, no AML. It's peer-to-peer. Uh, relatively low rates in the lending market uh, compared to other lenders. And then on top of that, it leverages Bitcoin's multi-sig properties as well. What you do is you put your Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig escrow account. You hold one key. Your counterparty in the loan holds one key. And then Hoddle Hoddle holds the third key. And so... Your Bitcoin's locked up as collateral. In that escrow multi-sig wallet, you can't move the Bitcoin, obviously, since you only have one key in that two or three quorum. However, since you have one key, you have visibility into the escrow account so that you know your sats aren't being rehypothecated. And if you're paying back your, your loan, your stablecoin loan, you're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Put sats up in collateral, get stablecoins in return, pay back the loan, get your sats back. Simple as that. On the other end, if you want to lend out stable coins that you have sitting around, you put them up in the marketplace, lend them out to somebody using Bitcoin as collateral. They pay you back what you gave them plus interest. Uh, it's a beautiful thing. Lend.hodlhodl.com. No KYC, no AML, peer-to-peer, leverages multi-sig, uh, and lower rates. Lend.hodlhodl.com. Enjoy this rip with Matthew. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Matt Williams, yeah. head of derivatives at Luxor. <laughs> Welcome That's to the it. show. Thank you. Appreciate being here. Well, I appreciate you being here because this is one of my favorite topics in the Bitcoin mining space. It's something that's been talked about for some time. And many miners are waiting um, for a commercial product to come to market. I mean, obviously, there's been many derivatives products that have come to market to date. Uh, we've got BitUda building their side of things. We've got the, yeah. the Blockstream token hash rate um contract futures contract whatever they're they're calling it and then you guys at luxor uh you're launching a cash settled futures contract correct yeah it's not technically a futures contract it's a forward a forwards contract forwards yeah. contract yes yeah similar nature though yes so you're the head of derivatives before we get into the nitty-gritty of this forwards contract what brought you to luxor why, why are you the man to build out this product? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I have a pretty extensive background in TradFi. So I used to be an energy trader a long time ago. So traded on the NYMEX, 
And then uh, the company I worked for sent me back to Chicago, where I'm from. I was previously out in New York. Started tra- trading eggs, futures and options, and then uh, eventually made my way to work for an exchange itself. So worked at CME Group for about five years, wearing a bunch of different hats, but uh, one of which was helping some of their product launches. And uh, was it late 2017, we launched Bitcoin Futures. So I was part of that team that kind of helped go to market with that. And then spent two years at a regulator prior to joining Luxor. So got the trading experience, the exchange experience, the regulatory experience. So know all the pain points that it takes to launch something like this. Yeah, freaks. So anybody listening out there, Matt's the reason why we have Bitcoin price suppression because of the CME's futures contract. Yeah, I'm the only one. It was just so, <laughs> so, so I, I get that. Uh, I get that all the time at my own job. Like, uh, get ripped. Yeah, there's a guy Aaron on my team. Every time we go to a conference together, he's always ride me for crashing Bitcoin. <laughs> it what? I mean, it, it. It's pretty pretty fun to look at the chart, the date that that contract dropped. I, I I am not a subscriber to that theory, but uh, well, I don't. Know, you know, there's there's some merit to it if you think about it. Like before futures were launched, my boss used to always say this when I was at CME. He was like, "You can only be longer, longer Bitcoin. You know, there's no way to short it. You know, there's some weird esoteric instruments that existed to short it, but nothing real. And so, you know, your, your choices be longer or longer." And so when they came out, like people had a chance to, to short it. And now I don't think it was the reason Bitcoin crashed, but it certainly facilitated it. Yeah. It was Charlie Lee coming out and saying that he dumped all of his Litecoin and oh, Charlie's out. We, everybody else is kind of dumped. But <laughs> and what, what, are, what were your thoughts on, like, did you pay attention to like BitMEX and their, their exchange when it was, uh, when it was riding high at that period too? Was that a good yeah. project in your mind? No, um, I don't know. I guess we had exchange bias. You know, we thought CME was definitely going to be the one to build, you know, the best product and that some of these new exchanges like BitMax were, you know, they had poor infrastructure and they're, you know, they crashing all the time. And so, yeah, so the instruments, we, we didn't put much credence into the instruments they were launching, okay. um, which, you know, in retrospect, there was some interesting stuff that came out of there, but. I don't know. I mean, CME always had the the infrastructure to kind of have the right to win for this. Yeah. In my mind, the coolest thing about the the BitMEX model was that it was pure Bitcoin. That's all you ever touched. You sent Bitcoin in. If you were using BitMEX, I've heard stories of people just sending Bitcoin in and going 100x long and sending it into the ether. That is BitMEX's insurance fund. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose it, it depends on the audience, right? Like if if you're talking to crypto enthusiasts, it's a different use case. And if you're talking to TradFi people and you're trying to get people, you know, institutionals to adopt it, it's a very different, very it's, different argument. Institutions. The institutions have been coming for, for well over a decade now. Are they here? They're more here than they were yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> um, but before, actually, since you traded energy on NYMEX, I'm actually really interested to hear your thoughts on the current dynamics of, of global energy markets and how they're trading right now, because it is this period in time will probably be looked back on as one of the most pivotal points in history as it relates to, to the energy sector globally. Have you been following it 
I know you're focused on hash rate derivatives now, but yeah, it's it's hard not to follow it, right? I mean, it's been it's been a high topic for for quite a while now. Um, yeah, definitely following it. There's there's some interesting parallels to when I was trading. I was a crude oil trader and a net gas trader, and so like right around you know what was it like 2007, 2008, um, you know, crude oil was 150 dollars a barrel, and and you know it. When I first started trading, it was hovering around $50, $55 a barrel for the longest time. And a big move would be a dollar. And then all of a sudden it's spiking and, you know, going up to $150 a barrel and you're looking at it and everyone's panicking. And then, you know, inevitably you get the calls for like, all right, well, next stop is 300. Well, <laughs> that's when, you know, it's time to, to short it. And so, yeah, I mean, same thing, you know, you get up to $150 a barrel and then you had a precipitous drop. Um, different economics i think contributed to that than than today but in the in the mining space it's, it's super relevant because this obviously impacts your revenue um so yeah i mean it's just another input that you have to kind of worry about if you're a miner yeah i mean that'll be interesting to see how the next six months to a year plays out. i mean we had the news of compute north north filing for bankruptcy yesterday um there's a lot of lingering questions what drove that bankruptcy was it their inability to spin up infrastructure down here in texas quick enough uh, and receive revenue to pay back debts that they had accrued or um, was there something on the input side of things from the cost structure uh, mainly driven by energy prices going up that sort of made their model uneconomical and forced them into bankruptcy well yeah i mean it's interesting uh, you know if you look over the last what 12 to 18 months you know, model inputs to your, your revenue, you know, in the mining space or, or people within the space, you know, you have your energy costs, you have your Bitcoin costs, you know, for us, we're looking at a hash price. It, it, it's typically been a space where there there's an aversion to, to hedging, even though the instruments exist. And I find it interesting from an energy perspective, because it's a fully mature space from a derivatives perspective, you know, you could look at, Nat gas, crude oil, electricity, it's not only is it mature, but it's nuanced too. So like you can look at instruments that are specific to region. If you're looking at electricity, it's even specific to timeframes, right? Like you have peak and off peak. And so like it, it's customizable to be very specific to your use case. But yet, you know, when you're in the middle of a bull run and everything's going great and Bitcoin's going up and energy costs are relatively stable you don't you don't want to hedge because you you're there's this fear of losing out on additional revenue and so it's like a you know i think it was a term like irrational exuberance right so everyone's like it's it's only ever going to go up and hedging is a fool's errand until it's not and so now you're seeing the repercussions of the people that didn't have robust hedging strategies yeah we always we always love a shout out to alan greenspan on this show <laughs> That's but, one, of my, one of my favorite terms so as somebody who's built their career around trading these markets and building a product that will allow people to incorporate a hedging strategy into their mining operation particularly around hash rate uh, i think this is a good topic to dive into and maybe explain because i think a lot of people understand what hedging is and uh, get the concept of de-risking 
uh, your long-term operations. But when it comes to actually employing a hedging strategy from a technical perspective, how much do you hedge out? What percentage of your treasury or your projected revenue um, do you do you put into a hedge? I think I think that's where people get a bit lost and confused. So, in your mind, for a mining operation and the specific uh, hedging strategy that you were just describing on the energy side, like what what would you, if you were developing a hedging strategy, uh, advise miners to do, particularly on the energy side? Then we can get in the hash rate as well. Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult thing to answer because there's no blanket answer for a hedging strategy, right? Like you have to kind of look at what your your business model is. You have to look at what your revenue goals are, what your risk tolerance is, and then, you know, kind of come up with a strategy that's right for you. But even before that, you have to you have to understand, you know, the risk factors that go into this. You have to understand the the tools, like the tools meaning derivatives that exist. And then you also have to understand, like, it's not just one tool, right? So if you're looking at your power costs, you might be looking at electricity or net gas hedging. If you're, you know, a hodler and you're looking at your Bitcoin exposure, you know, what what tools make sense for you, for you there? I mean, right now, there's there's lots of people that are, you know, avert, averse to hedging because it's expensive, right? So, like, because the tools are p- being pitched or, like, buying puts or doing you know, collars or whatever, like there's, a, there's these fairly simplistic tools that exist. And, and the problem is the space isn't so very sophisticated. So you either have to employ a huge educational effort or hire those kind of people. And so, you know, making the assumption that you have the right people, you start looking at your business and, and you could say, all right, look, let's do, you know, let's have a hedging strategy that covers our OPEX and then the rest will kind of let ride. So you could look at your, you know, your operating expense ratio and just kind of do a hedging scenario based off of that. So let's say your operating expense ratio is 60%, you know, it's very simplistic, but, and you have, I don't know, say, let's say you have 18 or 16, 16 or 18 X a hash and you want to hedge. So you take 60% of that. In our case, like you would use a hash price derivative and then you could hedge 60% out and have some sort of revenue certainty for that. And then you kind of avoid these doomsday scenarios of like goodwill impairment and whatever, like accounting, you know, (laughs) pleasantly packaged buzzword that exists. Um, You avoid those scenarios and then, but you still have 40% upside on the remaining X hash. So that's one, you know, another one you could look at and say, all right, I want to reduce my risk exposure by X amount of dollars. So let's say you want to take a million dollars risk off your off your sheets. That one's simple. You just take whatever instrument you have, take the million dollars divided by the notional amount of the contract, and that gets you to the contracts you want. And then to me, it's just a time frame thing. Do you want to hedge up 30 days, 60 days, 90 days? And that, you know, that comes with some trade-offs depending on how far out you want to hedge. But like these are all these are just two scenarios. There's, there's dozens of them that could be short-term, long-term. But the bottom line is, you know, you need to have a strategy for your business and certain economic scenarios. Yeah, it's very dependent on the particular operator. So large-scale miners would have different, way different hedging strategies than, than smaller-scale miners. Yeah. Uh, which is why I'm very excited to see these derivatives products come to market 
because I do think it gives smaller scale miners the ability to stay afloat and, and not get consumed by larger miners at the end of the day who are just looking to scoop up cheap assets if people are unable to hedge, just ride the risk too long and, and run into a beautiful shit show, which many miners have experienced yeah. this summer. And so in terms of the, to make the, the hardcore cypherpunk Bitcoin case for a developing derivatives market, and let me know if you think I'm wrong, but I think it makes sense because giving, equipping smaller operators with tools to hedge out and de-risk their, their operations could lead to a more distributed uh, ownership of hash rate in the future where if things were held equal without these derivatives markets uh, coming uh, to miners, uh, the, the likelihood of, of the larger miners consuming the smaller miners is, is significantly increased. Yeah, no, 100% agree. I, I mean, again, there's some caveats to that statement, right? Like it, it, there's a lot of education that needs to happen for the mid-tier and smaller miners. Like they have to understand how these instruments work. There's some pain points that exist, you know, from a regulatory perspective too, right? Like they have to sign ISDA agreements, they have to deal with margin, um, and then they have to kind of understand how settlement processes work and stuff like that. So, you know, things that like I would take for granted or some of the tier one mining companies that have derivative experts would take for granted. So to me, you know, when I talk about this and we talk a lot to those, those miners, it's an educational effort. You know, we got to say, look, you don't have to hedge a hundred percent of your, of your hash rate. You can hedge 20% or whatever. And like, and here's how it looks and here's different scenarios. And, and basically what you're getting with these instruments is revenue certainty for a certain percentage of your operation. And, you know, once you tell people that and you kind of walk through the mechanics, it's not super hard to explain what it is and what the dynamics are really for us. It's just going to be getting this thing off the ground and getting adoption and, you know, getting a diverse set of market participants trading these instruments. Yeah. And so let's dive into it with the forwards contract, particularly what do the mechanics yeah. look like? What, um, from a user experience flow on the minor side, what, what does it look like for them? when they're engaging in these forwards contracts. Yeah, so so it's important to differentiate when you start this conversation between forward contracts. Like forward's kind of a ubiquitous term in the, in the derivative space. It, there's two main forwards that you could have. There's a physically delivered forward, which you've seen, you know, that's kind of like the bid a contract. And, and to be honest, there's lots of merit for those. Um, but it's a different use case in my opinion. And then there's the cash settled forward, which is what we're launching. So it's technically called a non-deliverable forward, which just differentiates the physical aspect of it. So, you know, in a physically delivered forward, you're, you're getting paid up front for future hash rate, right? And then in, in a non-deliverable forward, you're basically agreeing to a price that's settled at the end of the contract. So no, no money exchanges hands until the end. And so the way the mechanics of this work, um, at least in our, in our example, we have an index. So Luxor has, you know, a number of indexes, one of which is the hash price index. This whole contract or, or derivative that we're building is, it revolves around that index. So hash price in this term is in petahash. So for example, like today, I think it's like $75 a petahash per second per day. 
and the index reflects changes in that um, based off the inputs. And so, you know, I guess I got to keep taking steps back here, but like the inputs that go into hash price would be Bitcoin price, network difficulty, block subsidy, and transaction fees. And those all go into a methodology that, that prints different prices for petahash per second per day. And so, you know, once you have that index, which, you know, preceded my time here, we decided to leverage that and build this, this cash shuttle forward around it. So essentially a miner, you know, using this as a hedging instrument would come in and say, all right, I want to sell X amount of petahash at say $75, lock it in for 30 days or 60 days or whatever the contract term is. And then at the end of 30 days, there's a settlement process. And basically the difference between where it settles and where you executed um, is settled in cash. So if you sold it at 75, hash price drops to 70, you made $5 on that, you know, times the notional value, that would be the, the money you capture from this trade, which basically offsets any losses you would have had on your mining operation. And then vice versa, if you're looking for exposure to the upside, you know, you could be an investor, you buy hash price at 75, thinking it's going to go up either due to difficulty changes or Bitcoin price. Yeah. So the other end, if hash price goes up, you set, uh, you engage in this contract as you uh, settle it or you enter the contract at 75 at the end of the contract, it hits $80, that settlement, um, like, so for a miner, if you're locking that in, you want to lock in 75 and maybe um, you think that that price is going to go down towards 70 over the, the course of that. You have to pay a little bit of money at the end if it hits $80, but you have your operations that you didn't hedge out that were capturing yeah. that, that increase in hash price as well. Yeah, I mean, you're essentially locking in revenue certainty for whatever percentage of your hash rate. Mm -hmm. You know, So if you're worried about a short-term drop in Bitcoin, or really just want to, you know, cover OPEX or, you know, if you're even, if, let's say you're a public miner and you want to get some revenue certainty for your quarterly projections or reporting, you know, this is a great tool to do so. And so, you know, like I said, you're essentially locking in that revenue for whatever percentage and the rest, you, you know, you let ride, as they say. Yeah. And so you mentioned um, institutional investors who don't necessarily have mining operations up and live they can interact in this as well take a naturally long position if they want to get exposure to bitcoin yeah i mean rate. yeah for sure i mean it, we want this market to be as diverse as possible right so if you just have a market that's only hedgers you're just going to have a bunch of people selling it and the price spread is going to be ridiculous and so you need to have a mix of participants so on the buy side you're you're looking at like market makers you're looking at you know, crypto hedge funds, private equity, you know, that a lot of like the, the markets you would go to in traditional finance would apply here as well. And so for us, we want to talk to anybody that'd be interested in getting exposure to this, either as a hedging tool or as, you know, a portfolio diversifier or whatever. Um, there's really only two requirements you need for this, and those are regulatory. And there's this concept called eligible contract participant, which basically says, you have to have, if you want to use this as a hedging instrument, you have to have a million dollars in assets. And if you want to use it as a speculatory um, instrument, you have to have 10 million. If you meet those requirements, you know, you, you absolutely can onboard with us and trade. Okay. 
And that's just is that just simply showing a balance sheet? Mm. Yeah, yeah, and it's um, you know it's total assets too, so it's not a huge requirement. Um, definitely will you know be a barrier for some people, but I think this largely fits with you know several tiers of miners. Yeah, and that um, yeah, that gets into the question of like. Uh, I forget what I was going to ask. I had a question. There's a fly flying around me right now, and I'm like distracted by that. But um, so this what? this not. I can make up an answer if you'd like. <laughs> can you can you actually swat this fly from uh, from Chicago <laughs> to Austin? Yeah, but no, I remember what I was going to say. So like the uh, non physically delivered forward is what your first product is. Why this product first? Because there's uh, as you described in other commodities markets there's many different types of contracts but why why is this um a good first step in your mind yeah so um so when i first joined in may I actually joined on may 9th which is was the least optimal time to join um but when i first joined in may um you know i have a I have a good background in tradfi i spent a fair amount of time um in the blockchain world too but you know i was at a decent grasp of the mining space but needed to do more homework. So I spent two months really just talking to miners and anyone in the community that would, you know, hear me out and give me feedback. And so I wanted to understand a couple of things like, well, you know, what is, what is the unmet needs in terms of hedging instruments and, and also what had been tried and what existed already. And so there's a bunch of weird stuff that had been tried that, you know, lost traction and a couple of things that had, you know, a modicum of success. And, and I tried to understand like why there wasn't deep liquidity or, or a ton of deal flow going through some of these. And part of it was like, you know, what I alluded to before is this lack of derivative sophistication, you know, which comes over time. But all, another part of it was, you know, the miners wanted something, you know, simpler, more approachable, you know, lower barriers to entry. So the problem, in my opinion, with a, a physically delivered forward, it's complex. You know, there's a lot of variables that go into it. Um, when you're delivering hash rate, you know, there's, there's downtime, there's curtailment, there's, you know, unforeseen things that could lead to you not being able to deliver, you know, the right amount of hash rate. Um, and so I wanted something that kind of took those obstacles out of, out of the way, you know, kept it simple um, and something that I could explain in under 10 minutes to anybody. And so this is what we arrived at. And again, it's not, a non-deliverable forward is not something new. It's been done in every asset class for, you know, you know, decades. Um, we're just basically taking a, a traditional finance concept and, and placing it in a, in a nascent derivative market. And so, so we do. So we started pressure testing it with, with miners. Everyone was able to grasp it. It's not rocket science and, and, and it leveraged an index, which is already pretty widely uh, referenced and used. And so people are comfortable with it. Yeah. Um, I do want to say though, like, I don't, I'm not trying to diminish a physically delivered for, cause I think there's value in those and I think they will grow and there'll be, you know, there'll be more deal flow. I, I honestly think this will be complementary to that and, and help liquidity in those markets as well. Yeah. There's an order of operations to all this. And as, like you said, it's a nation market. And so yeah, just on the execution side of things at the actual, actual, mining level the the industry is still trying to figure out like what the hell they're doing you have i mean it's 
public information since they're publicly traded. But you have monsters like Marathon. You have tens of thousands yeah. of, of miners sitting on the sidelines in warehouses because they don't know how to plug them in. You know, it's an interesting use case. It's something that we kind of, I kind of didn't anticipate when we were doing research. Is we, we always get the question, like, all right, so who's the other side of this? There's no question that miners need this as a hedging instrument, but who's the buy side of this? And I spoke a, a minute about that. And a lot of it's, you know, people, market makers looking for alpha or ways to arbitrage or generate some synthetic yield. But what are the true natural short hash rate use cases? And you just kind of talked about one of them. So this would be an interesting instrument for people that, you know, let's say they have ASICs and can't find hosting or they're trying to, you know, procure ASICs, but can't, this would be a synthetic exposure to hash rate where you could buy this product, get your short-term exposure to it and still participate in upside on hash price. Um, you know, there's use cases in tier ones where they're trying to appease shareholders and show that, you know, they're putting capital good use. This is a great, uh, this is a great use case for that. Yeah. So with this non-physically delivered contract, I guess the onus is on you guys to do your due diligence, right? Like you mentioned the capital requirements um, from somebody uh, in the mining industry and institutional investors who want exposure. Um, but focusing in on, on the miners, I guess, if you guys want to feel comfortable engaging in these contracts, you do... Um, pretty significant due diligence on these individual operators. Yeah. So this is the part where I encourage your listeners to get coffee because it's boring, but I will. Uh... <laughs> hey, don't tell people to leave, leave the stream. Uh, sorry. We're trying to get our like average views, view minutes up. Okay. I, we I can't was, have you telling people to go get coffee. I was absolutely not telling them to leave. I'm saying bring your phone into the, into the kitchen and, and fill up. Um, <laughs> so there's several regulatory components that go into this, right? And so I spent two years at the National Futures Association. I have a good grasp on how this this stuff works. And so, you know, when you do when you talk about due diligence, in order to even trade uh, NDF, so a non-deliverable forward, it's technically called a swap. So you're under you know certain Dodd Frank obligations. And so in order to do this, and this is the pain point, you know, that's unavoidable is you have to sign a bunch of what are called ISDA agreements. And so an ISDA agreement basically is a long set of terms that basically, you know, show what will happen if you're in default or you do certain things that would go against the nature of the trade. It's basically guidance for how to, you know, execute these transactions. And so part of that is what I said before was the ECP, the eligible contract participant requirements. You have to attest that you have those funds you have to, you know, agree to the terms with the, the person you're trading with. And you sign these, you know, 90, 91 pages of documents. Um, but, you know, fortunately, it's, it's an upfront thing. So you, you go through these terms, you sign it, and then you're able to go. But part of that is, as you said, due diligence. So counterparties are kind of on their own to do credit profiling of the people they're trading with. We'll have a concept of that. But fortunately for this market, the way we're structuring it is, Luxor sits in the middle. So we will be buying from the seller and selling to the buyer. So all the people that are trading these instruments will only interface with us. They won't have to worry about doing the credit profiling with the other counterparties. So we kind of remove that burden. So, you know, if you do your due diligence on Luxor and you trust Luxor, that's all you have to worry about. 
And for us, you know, we'll have our risk modeling and our credit profiling. And then if you're familiar with it, there's a concept called uh, initial margin and variation margin. And that's basically the money you take up front as collateral, you know, to protect yourself in case of default. Um, and then you manage it during the cycle of the trade as well. That's called variation margin. So again, like this is the boring stuff that has to happen in the back office, but you know, it helps you get comfortable with these trades. I don't know why you call it boring. It's very interesting. People, it, uh, people like to know the details, Matt. Yeah, no. You're describing the, them. The, yeah, there's there's probably a bunch of back office people who are going to be listening to this and be like, why is he calling my job boring? <laughs> <laughs> and so in terms of building like a, a risk analysis for, for individual operators from Luxor's perspective, what's that? Um, What's that spectrum look like? What type of things are you looking at? You mean like how we get comfortable with the, those yeah. types of, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, it's usually, you know, a combination of how well we know them plus what their financial statements look like. Cause part of that is the process. You have the exchange like W9s and financial statements. So you can get comfortable that way. Um, the public miners, obviously, you know what their uh, financials look like. So you go through that kind of process. And to be honest, like the way this is structured and we can get into more like mechanics if you want, but it's very similar to an electricity contract in terms of settlement. So you take what's called a floating price, which is essentially like an average of all the prices that print during the duration of the contract. So really what that means is like a, a lot of your, your price risk is in the beginning of the contract. And as you get closer to the end, there's less and less risk. So, you know, our model accounts for that, the 30% margin really, it protects us from pretty much everything except for tail risk. Um, and then the variation margin, which is basically whenever you get outside of a certain threshold, um, that's, you know, that protects you from your tail risk too. So long story short, there's a bunch of math and modeling and, and, and honestly, like, you know, relationship management that goes into your credit profile. Um, and then there's one last piece from a regulatory perspective that's worth mentioning. As part of trading a swap, you have this obligation to report the details of the trade to what's called the swap data repository. So that's another barrier that's kind of a, you know, it's a pain. Um, Luxor takes on that burden. So for anybody that interacts with us, we'll do all the reporting. Um, in fact, we've just recently uh, integrated it with a new swap data repository called Core Financial they'll be handling all our reporting needs. And so it's another one of those like things you have to do. It's not super fun, but we'll, we'll take on that burden for people. Yeah. And you mentioned it, like diving into the mechanics of the contract, like how it actually works. Let's do that. I think so. so sorry, I'm trying to get out of the sun here. It's okay. Yeah. We can't think, I can't believe you didn't have the guitar. In, in well, the, it's in like, this. it's next to my bed and oh, it wasn't sure if my bed was made. It's a beautiful bed. <laughs> Um, all right, sorry, what was your question? The, uh, I mean, you mentioned like we can dive into the mechanics um, of how this actually works. Let's do that. Yeah, so we, uh, a couple of months, I don't know, a couple of months into my tenure at, um, at Luxor, we had a really fun brainstorming session where we kind of locked ourselves into a house in Seattle for two, two straight days with all the founders. And I was like, I, I went and I presented and I said, look, here's 12 different options you could have for launching a new derivative. And so let's walk through each one, see which one makes most sense for this community and then kind of build a roadmap from there. And so we really tried to start thinking about, you know, what makes hash rate unique? 
Um, and there's a lot of things that make hash rate unique. If you think about it in terms of a commodity, you know, it's a, it's a compute power commodity, which, you know, you don't, doesn't really exist in TradFi world. Um, it's continuously delivered, right? So like if you have hash rate, it's, it's continuously pumping out trillions you know. of hashes. Yeah, exactly. And it's producing a monetary thing called Bitcoin. And so, you know, there's not a whole lot of tangential use cases in TradFi that exists like that. But there is one, um, you know, electricity. Electricity is very similar. Like electricity is a continuously delivered product. Um, and it's unique in that, like, if you don't use it, it goes away. And so, and it's specific to region. Like there's all sorts of nuance to it. And so we looked at it and we're like, you know, this is extremely similar in, in nature to electricity. So we structured, you know, some of the mechanics that way. And so when I was talking about how the settlement process works, you know, in a typical index, if you're trading a derivative around it, you basically, you buy it on day one at whatever price, and then it's settled at the end of the contract. And it's usually whatever that price was that day or some volume weighted average at the end of that day. And then the delta between those two is how your cash settled. That doesn't really work for this because, you know, it's continuously delivered and you have to account for that. So that's where this concept of a floating price comes in. So you basically have to take all the price prints that occur create an average to show you like exactly what you're getting for the duration of the contract. And that's how they do electricity contracts. And so when you say all the price prints that have been printed um, over the duration of the contract, are you guys like doing like a 5 PM Eastern weekday? Is there multiple data points per day? Like what, yeah, what snapshot good... of the price are you taking? Yeah. So we've refined the index in a number of ways, but one of which is it prints a price print every 15 seconds. Okay. So let's say you're talking day one, you execute the trade. Let's say, I don't know, $75, um, $75 pet hash at the end of day one, all those 15 second price prints are average. Now will give you your mark to market. So whatever that average is for day one, that's kind of your mark to market and PL for the day. And then you, for the duration of the contract, let's say it's 30 days, you would take an average of all those. And so that's essentially how the settlement process would work. And I'm not sh exactly sure how the electricity markets work because you do have like peak demand pricing and uh, off demand pricing. So I imagine they run 24 7 too. Yeah, that's correct. And so. Yeah. You know, again, there's a lot of nuance that goes into electricity contracts. Like, but I'm talking more from like a, a full listed, like forward perspective. So, if you look at like a PGM contract on CME Group, you know, their settlement process is almost identical to how we would do this. And that's, you know, to account for the nuanced, continuous nature of electricity. Yeah. And Bitcoin's 24 7, 365, trades on yeah. the weekends, trades after markets close. So that... Yeah, ex exactly. You're not settling at, you know, you know, it's not like old grading room days where it closes at one one fifteen. This is a UTC day, so it's like a 24-hour day. Yeah. And that's another, I mean, that was always, uh, I've had many conversations about these derivatives markets, and one common theme that has come up throughout the years is settling contracts based off of block height. Do you have any particular thoughts on that? We're sitting at block height, 755,369. Nice right now. Um, do, you, do you have that on a chalkboard or? It's right here on the block clock. Uh, oh, yeah, it sure is. Look at that. <laughs> um, 
I was like, that's impressive, man. Um, yeah, no, this topic has definitely come up. Um, it, the, it's not a great answer why I'm not doing it that way. It, it, the problem with this market is you're trying to cater to two very different backgrounds. So you have these, these Bitcoin mining people that need to hedge that aren't very well versed in derivatives on one side. And then the other side, you're trying to build, you know, buyers that are very well diverse in, in derivatives. And so you have to kind of tread the line between the two in terms of where they're comfortable and what they want to do to trade. And so that piece was a bit of complexity. I wasn't willing to add just yet. Um, I'm not saying we wouldn't rule it out and do something similar um, down the road, but, you know, I'm trying to attract, uh, not tradify people, but, you know, buyers to this that would be more comfortable with, you know, bring more liquidity. Yeah, exactly. Because in order for this to be successful, you have to have liquidity. Markets are, if you break down markets at a very high level, commodities markets, they're typically hedgers and speculators, right? And speculators, for lack of a better word. And so in order to bring in the speculators, you have to incentivize them. So they have to be comfortable with the product. There has to be some concept of alpha. You know, there's expectations that come with it. And if it's too nuanced and too complex or outside their wheelhouse, they're not going to participate. They'll go elsewhere. No. So, I mean, at Luxor, you know, we... They hired me as a head of derivatives, plural, like not head of derivative, right? So we wanted to, (laughs) this should be the first, like I want to build liquidity here and then start building other derivatives that are complementary. And and I think that would be a good use case. Yeah. And so what a top of your mind for next type of derivative that would be launched after this contract? Yeah. I mean, we get, there's a number of ways you could go here, but I think the logical step after having something like this is creating options um, to add some more well, options, I guess, to your uh, your hedging strategy. And then, you know, there's the physically delivered forward. You know, that was definitely something that, you know, Nick and Ethan uh, on our team were keen to do. But I, I said, you know, let's start here and then we can we can tackle that next. It's just there's more complexity to it. Just keep Ethan in the corner. Just keep him, <laughs> keep him over there. It's impossible. If you've met Ethan, you can't keep him in a corner. Okay, Ethan. Ethan, what's up, dude? Yeah, uh, what's up, Ethan? <laughs> <laughs> no, but going back to, I mean, it, it makes sense that you would do this type of contract first, get your counterparties who could provide liquidity comfortable um, by creating a product that they get and it's settling in. Um, meet space time and not block height time. Yeah. But again, going back to the block height, that's like, it's always at some point, there is an order of operations. This is what I'm trying to get. Order of operations is one of my favorite phrases on this show. Um, This seems like the first, uh, the correct first operation in this order of operations. But eventually, as you've described and what we've, as I've discussed on this show throughout the years, at some point, it does make the most sense if Bitcoin becomes a widely adopted monetary good and um, hash rate markets mature more than they are right now. Uh, the the block height settlement does make more sense at some point down the line. Maybe not right now because people aren't comfortable with it, but the idea of being able to settle contracts instead of going like um, three months yeah uh six month nine month year 
out contracts and said you do like 2016 block contracts you do having contracts you do um other uh, uniquely suited contract durations off a of block height due to the nature of uh bitcoin's blockchain and particularly um the difficulty adjustment yeah, I mean, honestly, I think that makes perfect sense. And if you look in the the TradFi world, this this concept exists. So, you know, a lot of futures contracts will be monthly contracts, but there's there's dailies, there's weeklies, you know, there's quarterlies. Like a lot of it's nuanced to, you know, to kind of be purpose fit for that asset class. And and I think that this example makes perfect sense. You could have. There's no reason you couldn't have both. When we first started this the thought was it being a OTC product, you could basically start whenever and end whenever. So you could start October 14th and finish October 21st or, or whatever you, you decided. And I thought naturally that's how it was going to go. But after shopping this around and getting feedback, the more, you know, depending on who you're talking to, it's so like if you're talking to energy firms that are, are starting to get into mining, they want monthly contracts. Right. So they wanted to start on the 1st of October and end on the 31st. And that kind of aligns with their energy hedging needs because that's how, you know, like their net gas or their, their crude oil or electricity contracts work. So, you know, again, it becomes kind of like, all right, who are you trying to appease here? So I think the answer is, is you have to have multiple, right? You have to have your monthlies, you have to have your, your block height, you know, and maybe weeklies, quarterlies, who knows? Like whatever the market needs is what you should develop. Yeah. And so... Are you bullish on on your product? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, I don't think I would come to your podcast and say, "Hey, man, this it might be all right." I don't know. We'll see. Like, I mean, the truth is, is I spend a vast majority of my time, you know, trying to validate this product and, and build market participants. We're actively, you know, onboarding customers through that ISDA process. And there's so much enthusiasm around it from both sides. You know, people want to be part of it in the beginning just to see it because they feel like there's a need. There's people that are like, you know, we really need this for our hedging operation. Um, you know, there's people that are, you know, trying to get financing and, and the financiers are looking for robust hedging strategies to facilitate the, the loans that they're put out. Like this, this tool is needed right now. And, and it has been for a while. And so, yeah, super bullish. Yeah. And what, I mean, what you just mentioned, right? Like that's something I've dealt with in my four years of being involved in the mining industry as well. It's like, yeah, you have an operation, it's up and running, it's successful. You want to go raise some debt. You don't want to dilute your, your company and you go to try and get some debt. And they're like, oh, are you hedging? It's like, no. It's like, all right, your cost of capital just went up by 5%. So. <laughs> right. Totally. It's now 18%. Okay. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, in terms of, again, letting smaller miners uh, expand and stay alive, this is massive because if you have the ability to hedge out, and you can, like you, like we've just discussed, you can go to finance or say, hey, yes, we have a hedging strategy, and then they feel more comfortable lending you money, yeah, and you can get a lower cost of capital and actually get access to that capital in the first place. Uh, a lot of times, you just wouldn't even get access to the capital. Yeah, I mean. Yeah. And to use a poor analogy, you know, this is a, a tool in your tool belt. Like you, if you're a miner, you have a number of risk exposures and, and this, you know, for Bitcoin, there's a bunch of derivatives that exist to hedge for energy. Same thing. There's nothing. Well, I shouldn't say there's nothing, but there's a, 
a small growing amount of derivatives for this space and it needs more. Um, you know, I get asked this question a lot, like, you know, how is this defensible? Like, are you going to be the only hash price, hash rate derivative out there? Like, we don't want to be like, I, we think it's better for the community if there's numerous derivatives. And if you look at any asset class, there's, you know, fully mature asset classes, thousands of derivatives that to choose from, and they're all, they provide liquidity to each other. So, you know, yes, I'm bullish and I'm bullish for the, the industry as well as it comes to derivatives. I think there'll be more and more of these. Yeah, you guys aren't looking to come monopolize the, uh, the hash no. rate derivative space. It's a co-opetition. The more competition, oh, the more God, liquidity. That, Why do you hate that, that word? word? Jameson Lop's not going to like that. I don't like when people munge words together, man. It's no. just like it's laziness. Laziness. <laughs> so you're not you're not a big fan of uh, somebody who's hangry. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm definitely not. <laughs> oh man. Uh, no, but um. The, in the like back to the derivatives talk, I'm not hangry right now. I'm not projecting anything on onto the listeners right now. I didn't skip breakfast or anything, but um, yeah, like you said, like that's uh, talking about that. Like, do you see you guys delivering this contract, and hopefully, it has a certain amount of success, enticing other people who may have been thinking about launching these derivatives into the market, giving them more confidence to, to launch their own products. Yeah, I think so. And honestly, we, we've talked to a few of those people as well. Um, we're certainly not the only one thinking about this at the moment. It's been a topic that it's existed for a couple of years now. Um, you know, it's always, it's, <laughs> I hate to say this, but it's always the best time to launch a, a hedging instrument in times of when you've just learned that you needed one. And so, here we are. There's a, there's a huge need for it. Um, but yeah, we we're talking to other people that are trying to do something similar and giving them the feedback we've got, because I think, as I said, there's plenty of room for, for multiple instruments. And I think it'd be beneficial to the community. Yeah. You, you launched the, the derivatives in the middle of the bloodbath. That is the, uh, the summer and fall of 2022 for the mining industry. Yeah. But I mean, think about it. If you looked, if you launched this during the bull run, would anybody have used it? No, I'm gonna get the fuck out of here. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's we're it's going kinda, to 100k. It's interesting though. Like going back to the irrational exuberance, like, it's not unique to this world. Like you know, back in the day, and even still, you you talk to any farmer or commodity producer, they're always irrationally bullish. You know, everyone thinks it's always going to go up. Farmers will hold on to crops as long as they can. Um, this isn't a new use case. It's just a new market with an old use case so a lot of it's educational um you know cme spends a lot of time going out and talking to, to farmers to tell them how futures can be used to hedge like this is the same thing like, you just have to paint a picture of how this can be beneficial to your your company and your solvency yeah and this gets into i mean going back to education and uh, helping to facilitate better knowledge around hedging strategies available to to miners, which is something we actually touched on last week when um, we hopped on the call to talk about this product and what we were going to discuss today. And this is something I've been really fascinated about the last two years, particularly as I've watched uh, those in the traditional energy sector begin to have the light bulbs go off with Bitcoin mining. 
um, is who becomes who first. Do, do miners become energy companies? Do energy companies become miners? I think it's going to be a mixture of both. But in the context of this conversation and derivatives, I mean, you mentioned it earlier, um, these energy companies have very robust trading desks that are, yep. that are, that are um, uh, applying these hedging strategies. Like, do, you, do you see um, somewhat of a flood of intellectual capital from the hedging strategy side of things coming to Bitcoin in the form of these, these energy uh, companies getting more into the mining sector? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, we talked to lots of energy companies that are getting into or have already gotten into this. It's, you know, it's interesting if you look at, you know, net gas, crude oil, electricity, there's so many different ways that you can hedge. You know, you have futures, you have options, you have swaps, forwards, PPAs, offtake agreements. You know, what, what do you have in this space, you know, outside of, uh, you know, Bitcoin derivatives, you don't have much. And so, but they come with a level of sophistication. They have to, you know, in order to be successful, because again, it's, it's regional, it's time specific. Um, you know, so when I start talking to them about this product, they're like, oh yeah, I get it. Like, cause it's a pretty simple product. You know, I'm not, this is, doesn't take a math degree to understand how this works. Um, but yeah, uh, so, you know, as they're getting into this space, yeah, they're, they're bringing that knowledge with them. And then some of the, mining companies we've seen are starting to hire that expertise as well yeah that's actually where i was going to go do you think the energy sector just comes in and steamrolls the incumbent mining operators i mean i I suppose you can make an argument for it i mean they have they have the right to win when you think about it from under understanding the impact of energy costs but i think you have to make some assumptions and in terms of long-term energy costs before making that statement yeah well not, you don't even have to make assumptions in the long term. I mean, you just have to hone in on today's costs and energy producers inarguably have the cheapest cost of energy. They're no, they source. do. They do. But like if you get like a huge price correction in any of these, you know, energies that are used for mining and, and it levels off and, you know, there are periods in history where you had cheap level, you know, consistent energy costs. If you get back to that, then what, what gives them the right to win? Well, this that's a good that's a good point. But also, like, how, God, this is so fucking fun to be alive right now, <laughs> Matt. Because as somebody who's been uh, deeply falling down the rabbit hole of mining upstream on oil and gas uh, operations, specifically for the last four years, like, and considering your experience trading that gas and crude oil at NYMEX, like, what... Does adding a mining component to an oil and gas operation um, do for those businesses? And how does it affect their strategies, right? Because you're essentially adding a new revenue stream that many would argue is completely disconnected from uh, the supply and demand drivers of oil and natural gas. Like, what what does this do for, for these businesses in your mind? Well, I think you hit it, right? It's just a new revenue stream that would have previously gone to waste. You know, I guess it depends on if you're talking, you know, an electricity producer, flare gas or, you know, crude oil. It it depends on what the use case is. But a lot of times, you know, some of that energy is just going to waste or it's not fully maximizing your potential. So this is just another revenue stream for them. Could mining be viewed as somewhat of a hedging strategy for them? 
I think, it, yeah, revenue hedging for sure. Like, yeah. you know, if I definitely see that. Um, although, I don't know, I'm trying to think that through because it's the upfront know, hot, cost is pretty significant. The upfront cost is significant. And if, what are you hedging against? Because if theoretically, if prices are going higher, you're doing better anyway, right? So, and if they decline, it doesn't make it that much more advantageous from a revenue perspective. So, I don't know if hedge is the right word. I think it's an additive revenue stream. Yeah. But but either way, I mean, it's super interesting. Um, you know, it's just taking taking something you're already proficient at and just adding more money because you know here's this thing where we plug this into our to our energy and it starts producing this wonderful monetary value and we can do you know all the stuff with it. I think it's I think it's an interesting development and uh, that's what I love about the space is it's just constant innovation. Yeah. So you're very technical, very tradfi. Do you ever wax poetic about this stuff and think about like how it changes humanity? Like obviously you worked on the the price futures at CMA where you just thrust into that position uh, and that was like your job or redrawn to it because you like Bitcoin and what it what it represents in terms of providing humanity with um, some form of utility moving into the future. Well, I think it, maybe before I even answer that, I can tell you how I got into the TradFi world because this is never a goal of mine. I was, all I wanted to be was like a forest ranger. <laughs> but, <laughs> Boss. I, I was, uh, my whole family's been in TradFi. So like both my grandfathers traded at the Chicago Board of Trade. I had three uncles that were traders in, in soybeans. So they were in um, the pits. They were in the pits. My stepdad was a currency trader. Um, one of my grandfathers was actually on the board of the board of trade. So like, this was a thing that I started doing summers after high school and then between college. They threw the uh, they threw the vest on you. Oh, dude, I could tell you we could have a whole podcast on stories about the pit. Um, I, I, thought, to... I mean, I told you I worked at a I worked at a managed futures fund on West Jackson, and all of our our analysts were former pit traders and their stories are some of the funniest I've ever heard in my life. It's nuts. Like I couldn't believe it. When I was going down there, you know, this is like the late nineties, you would go into work. There's this bar, infamous bar in Chicago called series. Mm -hmm. And so all the, all the old traders would be there in the morning, drinking screwdrivers and getting ready to work. And then they'd go to the floor, floor would open at nine 30. They'd work their ass off from nine thirty to one fifteen, and then immediately go back down to the bar, and then do it every day. Maybe you stop at the Billy Goat Tavern for, for, yeah, for a burger or something. Cheeseburger, yeah. Um, actually, funny story. I took uh, Ethan and Guzman to Billy Goat while they Did were you? here. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I have to get. I don't know what their impression was. It, it can be off-putting to some people when you walk down the lower Wacker. <laughs> <laughs> Just start screaming at you as soon as you walk in. Yeah. But um, to get back to your question, so yeah, I never got into this industry to be like a world changer, but you know, over time, like it, it became super interesting to me just from like a market structure perspective and how these instruments work. And, you know, obviously I stuck with it for my whole career, but, you know, getting into the mining community has been a whole different thing for me. Like when I was at CME, I was sat on the ventures team for a couple of years and I was on the board of a couple of blockchain companies. So I got exposed through that, but never like, you know, like the, the nitty gritty of where Bitcoin starts, which is the mining community. And, and the world changing component of it is 
you know, when you're going back to this energy conversation and, and some of these like, you know, climate issues um, that are super relevant today, the innovation that's happening in this space, you know, around like how you use energy and like using renewables and, you know, mining with cow farts and, you know, like <laughs> whatever you can come up with, you know, using hydro, solar, electricity, you know, it's like super cool. Like I never would have guessed that until I got here, like just see that. And so to me though, like the world changing stuff that's happening is like how people are using creative ways to mine and turn that into some monetary value. So it's, it's super different from my background, but it's been a pleasant surprise. Do you want to end the fed? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that's a, <laughs> that's a, that came out of left field. Um, uh, no, yeah. Yeah. Gotta I ask want the hard to, questions here. I was in favor, you know, when, when this started, when they started doing these regular raises of ripping the bandaid off and just kind of seeing what happens. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's a whole question. All right. <laughs> All right. He's a shit coiner freaks. He doesn't want to end the fed. I'm not a shit coiner. <laughs> I'm messing with you. <laughs> no, I'm not. You don't have to, you don't have to, uh, do, conform. Do you want to add this? I'm oh, of course I do. It. And what, what's, what's your main reason behind it? I mean, it's just driving all the shit that we're experiencing in our world. You can't, you can't micromanage monetary system. Monetary systems are supposed to be complex, right? And human action drives economic activity and the tool that helps coordinate economic activity. Money uh, yeah. should not be micromanaged by 12 people in a boardroom and then more broadly uh, their counterparts across the world. Uh, I, I will say I'm a, I'm a, a big proponent of free markets. So if that contributes to your. Yeah, we, we don't have a free market for money. No, Bitcoin we don't. gets us back to that. No, you're. It's micromanaged. 100% agree. Yeah. So he does want to end up at He just won't say it out loud because of the. Well, it doesn't really matter if I do or don't. It's not It's not going our way. Yeah. Any, anytime we're, soon. We're going to end the Fed. No, I mean, look what's going on. You've been following treasury markets yes. recently. It's all fucked. It is fucked, you're right. It's all fucked. I'm not going to call the end. You never want to be the guy that calls the end because then you wake up 10 years later. You know? Oh, yeah. It's like yeah, it's like calling the top of crude oil or saying Bitcoin is going to go to 143,000. We had 200K by conference day a couple of years ago. Um, oh, really? Didn't hit that. No. Um, that was not me. That was Matt Odell, my counterpart on Rabbit Hole Recap. Yeah, my I got a... My co-host. When I... Uh... I probably shouldn't tell the story, but when I first started at Luxor, we, uh, <laughs> Nick came down to Chicago and we, we, he took me down to uh, go see a hosting facility. And on the, on the board was everyone's price predictions for Bitcoin. And granted, like I joined May 9th, right? So like May 9th was, was a huge drop. And so it was super relevant at the time. And, and there were all these, you know, the list of everyone's projections. And there's a former Luxor, um, guest of yours that predicted 143, I believe, 143,000. And so, <laughs> Ethan, you shithead. It wasn't Ethan. Um, Nick? No. Ah, I know who. Yeah. And so, I, I, I thought that was hilarious. Um, but everyone's, everyone's projections were ridiculous. No one was, no one was anywhere near where we are now, obviously. Brammer was bullish. <laughs> <laughs> shit <laughs> yeah um yeah 
No, irrational exuberance does exist here. It's hard. Yeah. The, the, well, it exists everywhere, man. Like, it's interesting from a big, I mean, like, irrational exuberance kind of makes sense when you think about limited supply. Um, you know, it's the same thing in crude, right? At the time, it was going to $150 a barrel. Everyone was pushing this, like, it's fossil fuel. There's only so much, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there's other factors, obviously, that go into it. Yeah. Yeah, but back to, like, Fed policy and the global macro yeah. landscape right now. They just raised 75 bips. Oil prices have been going down here in the United States, but arguably because we're draining the strategic petroleum reserve, which may be fully drained in the next month or two, um, at which point we'll be rolling into winter. Uh, they're still decommissioning nuclear power plants, one in Belgium, um, yeah. in the next month or two, which is 10% of Belgium's grid, um, which is insane. And doesn't seem like Ukraine's getting fixed anytime. So I think the Fed is in. Again, I'm not going to predict end games, but if the Fed has ever been in a bad position, this is the worst position they've ever been in, where you have inflation running hot. They're jacking up the Fed funds rate as high as they can, and yet inflation doesn't seem to be taming down at all. It's a supply side issue. Um, it's not be, really being driven by demand. Like we fucked up the energy, and then we fucked up the food. So you have the situation, uh, treasury markets are going insane right now because Japan decided to intervene yeah. in their currency markets. And so they're dumping all these treasuries to to support the yen. Um, yeah, it's just fucking chaos out there. Thank God we have Bitcoin. <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. I mean, like, look, everything you said, I agree with largely. I think what people forget, though, is, you know, yes, we're raising rates they're still low historically speaking and i mean they were ridiculously low 12 months ago and and yes it's painful and yes you're trying to get a point where you know your your interest rates outweigh inflation but you know you have to fine-tune it you don't get there day one no but again that's why the fed's in a very precarious situation like because they held interest rates low for that long, we have this crazy debt. Now, what we're sitting at like 375 to four, 400 bips of the Fed funds rate and yep. just the simple interest payments on the debt we've accrued are approaching like a trillion dollars, which we're not gonna yeah. make up for in taxes. And we're like the only option, if it gets to that point, is to lower rates, begin printing again, to pay yep. back that debt, to re-exacerbate the problem. Yeah, it's it's systemic. For sure. Yeah. Let's talk about roads here. Let's talk about solutions. Okay, let's do it. Bitcoin mining. I mean, I mean, is there anything with this non-deliverable forwards contract that we haven't covered? I think we've been pretty thorough. I think we've been pretty thorough too. Um, you know, we're, as I said, we're we're onboarding lots and lots of participants that would be already, you know, and wanting to make markets in this. Um, we anticipate it being a very liquid market, even from day one. Um, yeah, we're, we're super excited. It does. We're starting with some smaller size trades, so like around the 50 petahash size, just to kind of get people comfortable with the mechanics and then just scale as the year goes on and, and build it out. And are we allowed to discuss the software? Oh yeah. No, people? yeah. 
Well, yeah, God, man, the guys would have killed me if I didn't bring this up. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so they brought me in to you know to kind of build the mechanics of this and then shore up the regulatory pieces and, and get it to launch. But you know, Luxor as a company, we're not up until now we're not a derivatives company, right? We're a software company. We we do we operate a mining pool. We do ASIC brokerage, like we do a lot of things. But a lot of what we do is. Um, you know, around software. So when we were launching these derivatives, we're also going to have what's called a, a derivatives UI. So it'll be a platform for you to be able to kind of check your positions, do mark to mark, check your PL, and then eventually initiate new positions. So, you know, OTC markets by nature are a bit manual. So, you know, if you look at like net gas and oil markets, people still operate quite a bit around telephone calls and chat messages to initiate trades. This will be similar except using, you know, telegram and stuff like that. But, you know, as this evolves, we want to build an RFQ platform to make price discovery more transparent and kind of facilitate the the depth of liquidity for this. So that'll be ready. We'll, we'll be launching, you know, the position piece of it where you can monitor your position. The next step would have that RFQ component. And then we're also developing some tools for the miners. So, you know, a lot of getting comfortable with these derivatives is educational. So we're putting out a, a hedging calculator. So essentially what that does is allows you to put different inputs in. So let's say you can put your total hash rate in, the percentage of it that you want to hedge, you know, what your electricity usage is, what your electricity costs are, the time frame over which you want to hedge. And then basically what it'll tell you is, how much you need to hedge in terms like this, the, the amount of contracts, what the notional value is that you have to put forth and then run through different scenarios. So if hash price goes up, here's what your, your P and L looks like. And if hash price goes down, here's what it looks like. So it's a, you know, in TradFi terms, it's a slider. So, where you can see like where, where your position is based on certain uh, events. And so basically it's just, you know, it's a nice tool for you to kind of, plug in your specific use case and get comfortable with what different scenarios would look like. And so all those will be ready um, yeah, pretty much next week, I believe. And so, um, yeah, just another piece to kind of help people with their trading. So we're going to be able to, to launch this episode next week. Yeah. I'm not going to gonna have to embargo. <laughs> your favorite word embargo. Um, uh, I'm, I'm going to hedge. God, I can't believe I just did that. Yeah, you Sorry. did it. You I did, did it. it. Yeah, and you used tool tape. belt, another tool in the tool belt. I, I, You're I know. using I'm like, I'm like product puns now. It's like I'm an old TradFi guy or something. Are you um, gonna Are you gonna grab the guitar and play us a tune before we leave here too? Yeah, I'm gonna whatever dad move I can come up with. <laughs> like I, I am a dad, so I might as well embrace it. Um, hey, here's to being a dad. Yeah, rock on, brother. Um. So yeah, um, we're still we're still working on the launch date, but it's imminent. Oh yeah, well. I'm excited for the launch. Thank you yeah. uh, for dedicating your intellectual talents to this space. Because like I said, in the beginning of this episode, these products are desperately needed as a miner myself, as a relatively small miner myself. Uh, I think this would be massive for uh, just, again, going back to the Bitcoin cypherpunk ethos. If you're out there and you're like, oh, we don't want TradFi guys coming in. We don't need these products. Like actually... If you want a sufficient distribution of hash rate ownership, these products will help drive that. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's an important point. Like, this is designed to be additive to the community, 
not not detrimental. Yeah. And so it's not like the cash shuttle, cash shuttled a futures price that yeah, crashed right. the price. It's, okay. it's suppressing it down. We would be at 143k. Brammer would have been right. Yeah, it's my fault. If Matt actually. didn't do what he did at his former job, so yeah, yep, you, you heard it here, folks. It is my fault. Uh, I'll take the blame. <laughs> well, when uh, I mean, by the time this comes out, the product will be launched, and where could anybody, any miner, any institutional investor looking to participate, uh, where, where are we sending them? Yeah, so if you want to go to uh, hashrateindex.com, um, there'll definitely be landing pages for you to either get a hold of me or you know the right people to initiate these trades. Um, if you want to reach out to me on Telegram at MattWilliams1, I'm always happy to answer questions and get on the horn and talk to people. Put your telegram out there. It's bold. Look, man, I, I, like I said, this is an educational effort and I want to extend myself where I can. Yeah, you're just gonna have you're gonna you're gonna get a lot of like, hey, how's your trade going? Um, yeah, I already get the messages. <laughs> um, well, Matt, thank you for your time. Again, thank you for doing what you do. I think it's desperately needed. And uh excited. Uh pumped for you guys. Congratulations. It's pretty quick. Join May 9th, sitting here September. 23rd, I believe. That's a, it's a pretty quick get to market. Yeah, we're pretty proud of it. And I got to credit the co-founders at, at Luxor for backing me on this one and, and helping me move fast. Yeah, and thank you for not including like some shh token. Like, like... Those already exist, man. A lot of other people do that. Token, okay. Tokens aren't my thing. All right. Not yet. You, you heard it here first. He wants to end the Fed. Tokens aren't his thing. Um, go check out hashrateindex.com. Um, and uh, if you're a miner, there's more uh, hedging opportunities for you. There's more tools that you can put in your tool belt. God damn it. Thanks for Matt. <laughs> <laughs> because of Matt. Matt, enjoy your Friday. Go have a burger yeah. at the Billy Goat Tavern for me. I haven't had one in years. I'll send you one. We'll see how it holds up in the mail. I don't know. I don't know about that. <laughs> um, that's all we got today, freaks. Peace and love. Dickie!